This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. No one has to feel by themselves if there's something out there that's stopping you from being the person that you want to be, if it's something that's interfering with your happiness, stopping you from achieving your goals or wants, you really don't have to be by yourself. We're in some of the most trying times that the world has ever faced right now, and bearing in mind how the past two years have been for us all, it's understandable that many of us are finding some things difficult. But it might not just be the fallout from COVID. We're each unique and anything can weigh on you heavily, can't it? So, if any of this sounds familiar, then maybe BetterHelp can help you. What BetterHelp does is offers a worldwide, much more affordable service than any traditional offline counselling, in which it assesses the issues you may be facing and calling on the broad range of expertise it has available with specialists in a vast range of issues, some of which you may not have locally available to you. BetterHelp matches you up with your own licensed professional therapist, one selected that best suits your needs for professional counselling. In less than a day, you can be communicating in a confidential online environment with your own selected personal counsellor, someone whom you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions with, whom you can message anytime you want or feel, and from whom you can expect timely, thoughtful, and most importantly, helpful responses back from. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com forward slash TCE and join over 1 million people who've taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com forward slash TCE. Hello all, and the very warmest of welcomes for almost the final time this series to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. The premier, but so I believe not the only, North Wales spare room based true crime podcast that seeks out the tales that aren't at the forefront of the mind, the lesser known, obscure or forgotten cases of true crime from all corners of the UK and Ireland. Bringing you these is myself, Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title, my beloved companion, the one-eyed and now almost toothless hairy football peaks is knocking about somewhere too. And most importantly, we're joined by you lot, the wonderful enthusiasts whose support has gotten the show into its fifth year. It's as fabulous as always having you all joining us. I always say me, but he's really never far from me, Peaks, so it is us. It's fab that you're joining us here today, which I thank you so kindly for doing so. And I do hope that as you have done, then you're all good, all safe and well, and you're all prepped for Christmas. 
So, the Series 6 finale tale is upon us. Now, it's not quite the last of the enthusiasts for 2021, because aside from the finale being a two-part episode, because there really was so much to it for it not to be, and the Patreon episode coming out over the festive period, of course, I shall also be sitting down and putting together an end-of-series review, same as I did last year, and all these will be out before we hit 2022. So it's proper busy times here, and I'm saving all the usual spiel that I have at the start of these tales for that one, which I do warn you also, it will probably sound as rough as a badger's arse, it might have be stumbling over words, or having me pronounce things wrong, but it really will be a case of me sat down and just totally ready to go off the cuff, much like the previous one was, and I'm really looking forward to doing it. As I've just mentioned, the final Patreon episode of the year will be out before its end. Some more horrors over the holidays, I think. And if you want to hear this and the other full series worth of unreleased bonus tales, from true tales of horror such as Disfigured and An Offering to the Angels, right through to bizarre stories such as The Strange Tale of Hellish Nell, with a jaunt through puzzling tales such as The Mystery of Leatham Street or The Beauty in the Bikini, to name just some of them, Then to do so is so simple, it's already won next year's Love Island, which I hope Putin or North Korea choose to use for target practice, I really do. And it costs less than it does to nick your very own supermarket trolley. Quicker than Downing Street on a Christmas quiz? Absolute bastards or what, eh? You can be hearing these and more by heading over to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast on the Patreon site. Always remember that podcast suffix. And you can find the show there. It's got the same logo and everything on it. Or you don't even need to search it out because you'll find a link in the episode show notes that will take you right to it. I'm very good like that. Shoutouts this time around go to both my returning supporters as well as new friends EJ, Laura Randall, Ross Mercer and Philip Brown plus Chantel and Rebecca Pittman who have opted to annually support the show. Thank you so much all, it is so very much appreciated of you to do so and it means the absolute world that you do, you each and every one of you rule. So hitting the ground running then, for the case I've selected for the finale, we head back fairly recently, less than some six years, and in an odd coincidence to the same part of the country as the previous Patreon episode of the show, Lucifer's Outlaws, took place if you've heard it, that is, the UK county of Northamptonshire, the southernmost county in the East Midlands. Now, it is somewhere we visited before on the show a couple of times, and a couple of points of note about it. It's home to Silverstone Circuit Track, which hosts the British Grand Prix and houses Mercedes Engine Manufacturing Factory, and reportedly 80% of the world's Formula One cars are built there, Northamptonshire has more historic houses than any other county, and Althorpe House in the county has been the stately home to the Spencer family for almost 500 years, and is of course the final resting place of Princess Diana. Its county town, Northampton, the location of the events I'm about to recount, is home to England's biggest market square, and famous souls to spring from there include Radiohead frontman Tom York, comedians Tim Minchin and Alan Carr, former Doctor Who and living Easter Island statue Matt Smith, and Topstat, MP for Northampton many years ago, just before the start of all this Covid bollocks it would seem, was Spencer Percival, 
who holds the distinction of being the only assassinated UK Prime Minister. Now at any, but especially around this time of year, a common sight out and about in any town centre of an evening is seeing revellers out letting their hair down, be it at celebratory functions, or just on impromptu nights out with friends or loved ones to have a good time. Friends out for a few beers or cocktails, moving from place to place, getting more and more lashed up, and more often than not, capping the night off with a kebab, perhaps having visited a nightclub first. I'm sure most of us have done that at some point in our lives, perhaps for some, that's still a great night out and a regular occurrence. The reason I personally don't bother so much anymore is that when you've drunk too much, when you get older, the hangovers get worse and they last longer, don't they? And again, I'm sure that's something that the majority of us have done before. Being so panelled that you can barely remember the night before and it only comes back in flashes, if it does at all. For most of us, though we may not remember much from the night and we may suffer dearly for it the next day, we at least have that next day to think, never again, because we do get home safe and sound, helped out by friends or good Samaritans. For most of us, that is, because sadly, not everyone does. The episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and events, including that of a sexual nature that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing. So as always, folks, please use discretion whilst you're listening in. Bearing that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiast for the final tale of this series for the first part of a story I've entitled The Good Samaritan. At just 20 years old, India Eve Chipchase was the very real definition of someone who had the world at her feet. A Christmas Eve baby, the eldest child of four children born to her parents, Suzanne and Jeremy, and already by that age having been lucky enough to experience living in several different countries. In January 2015, the focused and popular young woman had only some months previously moved back to the Northampton area where her mother had returned to live with India's siblings following her split from India's father, and whom she moved back in with. She'd spent the previous nine months living in France with her former boyfriend, Ivan Rahina, the son of former New Zealand all-black Bruce Rahina, and who was a professional rugby player at the time for French rugby club Bordeaux Bagels. But life as a wag wasn't what India had in mind for herself, for she wanted to follow in her father's footsteps and to devote her life to helping and healing. Her father, Dr. Jeremy Chipchase, is a senior doctor in the obstetrics and gynaecology department at Lyle McEwen Hospital in Adelaide in Australia, alongside being a respected and well-versed teacher, supervisor and journalist. So taking inspiration from her father, it was India's lifelong dream to enter the medical profession as a paramedic. To this extent, she'd sailed almost effortlessly through a schooling at Pittsford School, just outside Northampton, where she was remembered as a delightful girl with a bubbly personality who would go out of her way to help others. And upon leaving here, she'd enrolled at Northampton College, where between September 2013 and June 2014, she undertook a diploma in health and social care. Whilst a student here, 
She'd worked on placement at St Mary's Day Nursery on Abbey Road in the Northampton district of Far Cotton, a place she enjoyed working at so much and was so highly thought of during the five months she initially spent there that she was later welcomed back as a part-time nursery assistant, impressing her supervisors for her teamwork, initiative, care in nature and her sensitivity. It was an impression that, that was repeated when she later moved to a role working with children and the elderly at St Andrew's Healthcare, a role that she excelled in and where she was again well liked and highly thought of by staff and patients alike. Now for many people, success and competence in work as well as social popularity is something that just doesn't gel. You should see some of the wingnuts that work where I do, I tell you. But for India, as I'm sure you get the impression by now, this was certainly something she didn't have a problem with, because she had both in spades. There are many pictures of her available to see through searching online, and the impression you get from each of these, aside from the initial one, is one of a popular, confident young woman. Someone kind-hearted also, as is suggested by posts from her Twitter account, such as I love making pedestrians smile while I'm driving in my car, singing along to Because I'm Happy, or Just watch the car spin round a roundabout and go up a curb. I pulled over, got out the car to make sure the driver was okay. That's my good deed of the day. Someone popular, someone driven, and someone happy. The photographs available and widely reproduced, each depicting a variety of different occasions, all show a smiling young woman, be it with her family or posing and laughing with friends, and aside from these characteristics striking you, it can't be lost either what a stunningly beautiful young woman we're talking about here. One source I use for researching the tale describes India as being in some ways like a lot of young women her age. Fashion conscious, sociable, someone who loved a girly holiday, music that I'd rather rub a bloody cheese grater over me eyeballs than listen to, and of course, the obligatory selfie from an angle. But someone who was also extremely kind to her parents and siblings, who was confident but not arrogant, and who never lost a kind-hearted nature towards anyone. The source, when describing India, imagines her as, I quote, such a fun person to be around. And I can't fault that really because I was left to imagine the same. All sources paint this same picture as someone easily likeable, with many male and female friends, and someone who, due to her stunning looks, effortlessly turned heads wherever she went. While she was working towards her medical career, India had, in the summer of 2014, got a job working behind the bar of the Collingtree pub in the East Hunsbury area of Northampton, where she soon became a well-liked and competent member of staff, and had by that September begun a relationship with a regular customer there, Grant Hare, although the consensus of reports available are that the relationship was at the time only semi-serious, and most likely it was a very much a one-sided one, it having rapidly cooled on the part of Hare. Regardless of how serious it was, there were a couple who liked each other, and often went out together on dates, as well as bumping into each other when on nights out with mutual friends. So truly, the girl who has it all, what could possibly go wrong?
The night of Friday 29th of January 2015 was one night that India was not working and that evening she had a somewhat impromptu night out around town with friends. It was a Friday night that Grant was already out sampling the Northampton nightlife, attending a birthday function of a friend with a group of several others and perhaps somewhat put out or disappointed that she couldn't see him that evening, India decided, well, why not? Scrolling through the contacts of her iPhone to see who was up for joining her, by early evening she was dressed to kill and was at the Collin Tree pub to meet some friends of hers, Brandon Alford, Alice Lewis and Harry Moyden. Now, as often happens, soon the foursome decided not to just limit themselves to the calling tree for the evening, and opted to head up into Northampton town centre to hit a few more bars, a total spur-of-the-moment decision. Where they visited during this pub crawl is unreported, as is what they drank, but what is certain is that as Friday became Saturday, the foursome were well into the spirit of a night out, and had arrived at NB's nightclub in Northampton's Bridge Street, where on the menu was fishbowl cocktails, and where CCTV captured them entering at 11.30pm. The nightclub's website describes how it has a cave bar that does everything from your classic mojito right through to something called a bogwell, which sounds proper gopping, whatever it is, and it states... We've got cocktails that will put a smile on your face, shots you'll regret straight away, but you're guaranteed to always come back for more. Fish bowls are a massive hit if you're that caring and sharing person who loves partying with friends. It sounds like my idea of hell, that does. I'm a bit more established myself in one pub that's got a good dukey for the evening. Oh, and if there's a pub quiz on, count me in. I'm a bit more that age now myself. Perhaps when I was a young thruster though, I would have been different. But places such as these have youngsters swarming all over them like the bloody walking dead, don't they? And this is where India and her friends had ended up by the first few minutes of that Saturday morning, drinking fish bowls of God knows what in the cave bar, before heading out of there and chucking some shapes on the dance floor. It's India especially seemed to be having a good time drinking and dancing there. And her friend, Brandon Alford, recalled later, I quote, I remember having some banter with her and made the joke that she was steaming. It was then time for Jaeger bombs for the quartet, which if you've never had one, is a very popular drink. It's a mix of Jägermeister, a German digestive liqueur, and Red Bull, and which proper knocks you about the next day. A friend of mine used to have a Hawaiian-themed barbecue every year and without fail he would always produce a bottle of the stuff that nobody was allowed to leave until it had all gone. I've been in some right bloody states at a few of them, I tell you. So India and her friends had a good hit at these Jaeger bombs, constantly reordering them from the bar staff. Alice later recalled, We had Jaeger bombs at the bar. We had about six each in ten minutes. India appeared quite drunk, a lot more than I was. She was walking wonky. At 12.15am, bar security cameras captured Alice helping India up after she'd fallen over, after downing these six Jägerbomb cocktails. Both drunk by this time, India and Alice went outside the nightclub for a cigarette just before 12.30am 
where India then tried in vain to call her boyfriend Grant. However, when she couldn't get through to him, she briefly burst into tears, and reportedly, as Alice recalled later, showed her marks that she had on both of her forearms. Now it isn't reported as to whether these were cuts or bruising, nor how they were obtained. She just told me they weren't speaking much anymore, said Alice later. She was upset. However, in the way people do have fluctuating emotions when they're drunk, upset one minute and dancing the next, but only a minute or so later, India had calmed down and the two women had made their way back inside. Yet only a minute or two after this, at 12.39am, as was seen later on bar CCTV, India was slumped across the bar before, so drunk, she dropped a handbag, spilling the contents of it all across the floor, and had once again fallen over whilst attempting to bend down to pick them up. Now there's some slight ambiguity with the events that occurred immediately after this. One account claims that either Harry or Brandon escorted India to the door of the nightclub and placed her into the care of the doorman, David Burry, asking him to escort her outside for fresh air due to her drunkenness. The other account claims that whilst Alice, Brandon and Harry were talking by the bar, Harry got another round of drinks in, including one for India, but she was nowhere to be found. In a later statement, he said, When I turned around, India wasn't there. After about 10 or 15 minutes, Alice and I decided to look for her. It's out of character for her to leave without saying anything. We looked everywhere for her, but couldn't find her. During this search, which lasted reportedly between 12.45am and 1.15am, both Alice and Harry searched the entire busy nightclub for India, as well as both trying multiple times to ring their friend, but not getting an answer, believed India's mobile was switched off. Eventually, with the search fruitless, they gave up. We thought she'd either gone home or met up with other friends, Harry said later. India hadn't gone home or met up with other friends at all though. Almost 15 minutes after they began scouring the club for her, thinking she must still be in there somewhere because it would be so out of character for her to leave without saying goodbye, I'm off. India was still in the vicinity of NB's. She'd spent some time outside and by 12.58am, with no realistic prospect of being allowed back inside the venue due to how drunk she was, had told the supervising door staff member, Dave Burry, I just want to go home. Mr Burry had duly assisted India to a nearby waiting licensed cab, had ascertained that she had enough money in her purse to pay for her fare, and had then headed back inside the nightclub. However, due to the drunken state that India was in, and with the fear that she would either not have the funds available to pay for her fare, or would even be sick in the cab, the taxi driver, Andrew Birkinshaw, had asked India for the fare in advance, which to her home in Wooten would have been about £10. Though she did have ample money for the fare, as Mr Burry had seen some £15 in notes in her handbag, when she was asked for the fare up front, India became argumentative and stormed out of the taxi. In a later statement, Mr Birkinshaw said, a young, slim girl was put in my cab by a doorman. She was drunk, so I asked for money in advance. She got angry and threw a wobbly, 
I couldn't understand what she was saying. She made no effort to pay and left my cab, and I didn't see where she went. India had, in fact, gone to lean against the wall of the nightclub, where she spent some minutes fixated on her phone, attempting once again to get through to Grant Hare through a series of text and Snapchat messages and calls, becoming upset when she failed to reach him. Another reveller awaiting a ride home near the club with his wife Jacqueline, Christopher Kristen, spotted Indy here, recalling later, I think she was trying to get through to someone. It seemed like she was crying. She seemed quite distressed. By 1.08am, CCTV showed India stumbling around outside the nightclub, at the point where Mr. Burry walked back outside and India fell over into him. He recalled later. She said, Someone's pushed me over, and then repeated that she wanted to go home. I said to her, I just put you in a cab. Telling his colleagues to keep an eye on her, Mr. Burry then went back inside the club, and 15 minutes later, when he spotted the man who had originally alerted him to India, he told him what had happened, saying, I said to him, Did she get home okay? And he said, I went out the front, but she wasn't there, so as far as I know, she did get home. The spectacle of India staggering around outside had attracted the attention of several people, but especially that of the scruffy figure who, only a minute or so after his second conversation with Mr. Burry, although not dressed appropriately for the evening, and looking like a square peg in a round hole amongst the other would-be revellers, had joined the queue of people waiting to get into NB's. He was drawn immediately to the attractive young woman, mentally noting her resemblance to a photograph he had pinned up on his wall at home, only a short distance away. And he watched, with all thoughts of entering the nightclub now rapidly passing him by, as the drunken, deeply upset young woman tried the handle of a locked car, thinking that it may be a taxi. He watched her as she sat down on the pavement only a short distance away and began weeping captured on the club's CCTV doing so at 1.11am. The same CCTV which captured him two minutes later breaking away from the nightclub queue and approaching her. Christopher Christen, who witnessed this, said later, An older man wearing a duffel jacket and a rucksack got all the way up to India. He asked if she was okay. He put his arm around her and said, We'll make sure you get home in a taxi safely. The man was then heard telling India to put a phone in a bag for safety. Now the full exchange between this older man and India in the next few minutes cannot and most likely will not ever be known. What is known, what can be established from Lacer's CCTV, is that the older man was quite intrusive towards the young woman in this exchange. He's right up there in her face and almost immediately took hold of her left elbow, remaining holding it throughout the entire exchange. Most likely he kept repeating to India how he would ensure she was safely into a taxi and away home, being a proper good Samaritan. And eventually India accompanied him and both set off to head up Bridge Street towards a taxi rank further up the road. Just seven minutes after they began their exchange, India and a good Samaritan had 
been collected in a taxi. The driver from Bounds Taxis in Northampton, Azizula Miagan, described later in a statement how he collected the pair from Bridge Street at 1.20am, at first struggling to understand the instructions that he received from the man, as in his opinion, both the man and the young woman were drunk. But after he got inside the taxi with the young woman, who he later identified as being India Chip Chase, the man told Mr Miagan to drive to the McDonald's restaurant in the Riverside area of the town. Mr Miagan then drove down Bridge Street towards here, only to be told at the bottom of the street to head instead to the McDonald's in Sixfields. However, on the way here, whilst heading westwards along St James Road, the man asked Mr Miagan to pull into the forecourt of a BP petrol station and convenience store here, exiting the vehicle and heading out of sight of the driver. By this time, it was 1.25am. Whilst the man was out of the vehicle, for some four minutes in total, India tried several times once again to contact Grant Hare, calling him at 126, 127 and finally again at 128. During the time the man was out of the vehicle, she also sent a mix of text and Snapchat messages to contacts in her phone, although these were largely nonsensical, an example being one that said, we're our club. When the man returned to the taxi and got back in, he told Mr. Miagan to take them to St. James, only to be told that that's where they currently were. After driving on for a short distance, at the first set of traffic lights that they came to, India then asked the driver to turn right, but the older man told him to instead drive straight on through them and continue, which he did. When the car reached the junction of St. James and Marlborough Road, the man told Mr. Miagan to turn into here and head down towards the bottom of it, before at 1.35am directing him to park some distance midway down. Here, both the man and India got out of the taxi, the man paying Mr. Miagan £6 for the £5.50 fare and telling him to keep the change. According to his later statement, by the time Mr. Miagan had put his fare away and prepared to return to the rank, the couple were out of sight. He didn't see which way they'd gone after they left the taxi. But one person who did see them was a man named Patrick Francis. At 1.40am, he was stood by the railings on Marlborough Road, smoking a cigarette, as the vehicle he was a passenger in had stopped for his driver friend to take a telephone call. Patrick later described, I got out of the car and I saw two people by the side of the fence on my side of the road about five or six feet away. She seemed as if she was drunk because she was holding onto the railings. The guy who was with her was standing there by her side. She was in her twenties, but he was older. His right arm was round her side. He didn't seem drunk. I thought it was strange that he heard me pull up and I said, all right, and he didn't even turn round. He started to help her across the road, all the while he had her by the arm. I saw where they went, and they went into a house away down the street. He unlocked the door, and then guided her in with his arm. She went in first, and he went in after her. Now the street that the couple had headed into after being dropped off was Stanley Road a row of mainly terraced housing that leads off Marlborough Road, separating here and the ominously named Ambush Street, 
And although Patrick didn't know it at the time, the property that they'd entered was number six, a terraced three-bedroom property midway down the road. He was, however, in the light of events to approach police with his sighting later that evening. Meanwhile, just over an hour later, shortly before 3am, India's boyfriend. Reports are that they were very much hot and cold, but we shall refer to him loosely as her boyfriend, Grant Hare, was just getting in from his own night out. After seeing India and her party in the Collin Tree earlier that evening, he and his friends had headed onto the Wellingborough Road area of Northampton, where the party had visited the Old House, the Jekyll and Hyde and Bar Soap, Hare was later to claim that he became aware of a couple of missed calls and messages from India when he checked his phone in Barso shortly before midnight, but claimed that he'd not heard these come through at the time they were made due to the noise in the club, and reportedly made no effort to reply to them. Hare and his friends had then moved on to Revolution in Bridge Street, a club just across the road from MB's, and from where he later went and bought a kebab, then took a taxi home. He was later to claim that just after he got home, he started recharging the battery on his mobile phone, it having died some time during the evening out, and when it had reached enough charge for it to reactivate, a number of missed calls and messages he'd received that had been in the weird bloody dead zone where texts and messages stay before you get them, whilst his phone was dead came through. No less than nine of these missed calls in total, and two text messages, sent in the past couple of hours, were from India. One read simply, Where are you? Hare later claimed that upon realising he'd missed so many contacts from India, he then sent her a Snapchat message saying, My battery died, are you okay? And had tried calling her back three times, but each time the call went straight to voicemail. Thinking that India must just be proper hanging one on and be asleep by then, Grant soon went to sleep himself, expecting a reply from her when he awoke. But by the time many of those that I've mentioned awoke that Saturday, Alice, Harry, Brandon and Grant Hare, there was to be no messages waiting for them from India. There had been no communication from her whatsoever since the early hours of that day, and it must have crossed each of their minds, I wonder how she is, and I wonder how her head is today. But India's mother, Suzanne Pointer, she'd referred back to her maiden name following a divorce from India's father, was a bit more concerned, because India hadn't arrived home that morning. At first, Suzanne and India's siblings, her younger brother Harry and her sisters Pia and Honor, theorised that she'd simply stayed at the home of one of the friends she'd been out with the previous evening after sharing a taxi. But as the day wore on, and with Suzanne especially mindful that her daughter had an afternoon to evening shift at the Collendale that day, she began to worry. Knowing it was most unlike her conscientious daughter not to be in touch, but perhaps not wanting to think the worst just then, because really, what family wants to face such a possible nightmare, eh? Several messages to India's social media accounts were made by her family that Saturday, with Suzanne posting early that afternoon on her daughter's Facebook page. India Eve Chipchase, please let me know you're okay, please, darling. Love you. Five kisses. However, 
The heart-stopping moment that must be every parent's nightmare, and it really must be. I've said countless times before here on the show. That moment came for Suzanne shortly after 4pm that Saturday afternoon, when staff from the Collindale pub telephoned her at home inquiring after India, as she'd failed to turn up for her designated shift. Suzanne had pinned all of her hopes on India just heading there from whichever friend's home she'd been staying at, and with panic now setting in, India was then reported to police as a missing person. Now initially, India's disappearance was classed as a medium risk one, though she was from a happy home and had no history of disappearing, so this was an obvious concern. There was nothing to suggest at that time that she'd come to any harm. Nevertheless, police went around to speak to the people India had been out with the night before to establish a description of what she was wearing and where they'd visited the previous evening, so police could establish a visual timeline of her last known movements through premises CCTV. By the following morning, they'd managed to trace the party beginning from the Collindale right into the town and everywhere they'd visited culminating in the CCTV footage from NB's nightclub that captured the events that you've heard described thus far, including India being approached outside by the older man, who some minutes later she walked off with, him clearly escorting her. One of the officers viewing the CCTV from NB's, when it was zoomed in so a closer view of the man's face could be seen, recognised him at once. For just five days previously, the same person had been arrested by Northamptonshire police for being drunk and disorderly outside a house in the town and had been kept overnight in the cells before being bailed the following day. So now having a potential lead as to the last person to have seen India, this strengthened when a check of India's mobile phone activity revealed that it had last been activated in the vicinity of Northampton's Victoria Park in the early hours of that Saturday morning, which just happened to be less than 300 yards from where the man in question lived. Before this had happened, however, and on an entirely different matter, Francisco Lino, the night porter at Northampton's Ibis Hotel on Mayfair, a short distance away from Victoria Park, had at about 3.35am that Sunday morning contacted police and requested that they attend the hotel to deal with a minor disturbance, and so a patrol was duly dispatched and attended. As the officers made their way inside, they passed a flat-capped figure leaving the premises, but thought nothing of this. It was the second or third time that the man, who although wasn't a guest at the hotel, had arrived there at about 9.30pm the previous evening and had hung around the lobby. It was the second or third time he'd left the premises and he was to return back to the hotel some 30 minutes later, once police had left. Police would be back to the Ibis Hotel later that same Sunday, but this time for a much more serious matter. So, with the location in mind to begin the search for India, shortly after 3.30pm on the afternoon of Sunday the 31st of January, a team of officers gathered outside the front and the rear of number 6 Stanley Road, where after no response to knocking, a forced entry was made, 
and as officers stormed into the narrow property, they stopped to take in the strange, somewhat chilling sight that lay before them. If you head over to the show's Instagram page, reproduced there are several images of how the property was discovered, but to recount how it was is as follows. Heading in through the entrance hall, police discovered that, instead of a carpet in the hall, a series of well-trodden newspapers and comic books covered the floor, so thick in sheets that it formed a makeshift carpet, a feature that extended throughout the entire property. The lounge and rear room downstairs, although sparsely furnished and with the walls bare, looked to be largely unused, rather instead used more for storage, evidenced by the scores of large plastic tubs and boxes that were stacked about the room, each filled to capacity with papers, magazines, and items that were later to be described as memoirs. The curtains were also drawn, it later established to be permanently, and black plastic bin liners covered each of the windows. The kitchen of the house, a narrow room that extended to the rear of the property, although everything was neatly placed in, was largely unkempt and grimy, and much the same was the squalid bathroom on the ground floor also. Though an extra feature that the kitchen offered were the cut-out pictures of several women that adorned the walls and surfaces, including pictures of the girl band Little Mix, several catalogue models, and a former Vogue cover girl, Heather Stewart White. Several newspaper clippings, again concerning women, were also scattered about the room. Now the downstairs of the house was what you could describe somewhat accurately as squalid, that's a very fair word to use. However, another word you could also use to describe it, the one that popped into my head while I was writing the episode anyway, is clinical. I know that might seem a bit of a juxtaposition, and I say clinical because everything, and I'm not exaggerating here, everything, even down to plates and bowls in the kitchen, was meticulously covered in either plastic sheeting or wrapping, or cling film. I'll just let that settle in for a moment. Imagine the trepidation you'd feel there then. You'd think, what the fucking hell have we walked into here? And that was before they made their way upstairs. Heading upstairs then, two of the bedrooms up there were largely like the downstairs rooms of the house, filled with rucks of stuff in boxes, some of it found to be women's shoes or clothing and placed on shelving units that extended around the walls, with every bit of it covered in plastic wrap. Even the computer in one of the rooms was covered with plastic sheeting. In fact, it appeared to officers as though just one of the rooms in the property showed any real signs of use, in not being as plastic covered as the others, and that was the front bedroom. Police Constable Stephen Knight was the first officer upstairs, and as he reached the top, turning right and then right again on the landing. He went into the front bedroom of the property. He was later to describe his findings, saying, The door was breached. I went straight up the stairs to the landing, right and then right again into the front bedroom. As I got to the doorway, I could see a mattress in front of me with a blanket on the top of it and items around the edge of the room. I could see the shape of a figure but it was the hair at the top of the mattress I could see first. I thought it was fur at first, until I got closer and saw it was black hair. As I got closer, 
I could see the hair was displayed. Instead of being down, it was pulled up and around, sort of like a halo. A radio playing music from a local station was on in the room, alongside a solitary light from a bare bulb. Two glasses containing the residue of red wine sat on a train nearby, alongside an open book containing pictures of scantily clad women. The sheet, or blanket as it's variously described, was pulled right up to the chin of the figure on the mattress, and PC Knight lifted a corner so he could see the features of the figure more clearly. The figure on the mattress, for it was on the floor, not a bed, when the blanket was lifted off was that of a fully clothed young woman. The clothing and description of her matched exactly that of the missing India chip chase, her long dark hair seemingly arranged in a halo-like shape. Body cam footage that was later shown to a court taken from another officer who'd followed PC Knight into the room recorded the actions, and in the footage, PC Knight can be heard desperately shouting to the prone, fully clothed young woman, Can you hear me? Can we get a paramedic? He then says to another officer, We've got a positive ID here. PC Knight then again tries to get some response from India, who of course this was, yelling, Sweetheart, sweetheart, can you wake up? Can you hear me? After several attempts at this, the footage also captures the moment where it sadly dawns on the attending officers the reality of what they've discovered, them confronted with the fact that India was past any medical help. One officer off camera can be heard to say, she's gone, she's gone, shit, she's gone. India had sadly been found. As paramedics and a police surgeon raced to the scene, Stanley Road and Number 6 were sealed off, and as a hunt for the occupant of Number 6 began, a search of the property revealed India's belongings scattered around the house, but placed in such a way as to appear inconspicuous. Her mobile phone was found stored neatly in a box underneath the stairs, whilst her shoes and her clutch handbag were found stored in the neighbouring upstairs bedroom. When Home Office pathologist Dr Michael Biggs arrived on the scene, death was certified and as India's body was conveyed to Northampton General Hospital for post-mortem, officers were dispatched to her family home in Wooten to deliver the most terrible news that they must be to get. The later post-mortem was to reveal that India had a blood alcohol reading of 235 micrograms of alcohol in 100 millilitres of blood, some three times the legal limit for driving, and which would have caused disorientation and mental confusion to her while she was alive. However, Dr Biggs during his examination also noted some 33 marks or injuries to the 20-year-old's body, including bruise into both her hips, a number of bruises to the head, face and neck area, signs of blunt force trauma, a graze to her ear and cuts in her mouth and on her lip. However, cause of death was not due to a sustained assault, as these marks would suggest. Establishing that India had been dead for some 12 hours by the time she was discovered, cause of death was reported by Dr Biggs as being the result of pressure or compression to the neck. 
There was also evidence that India had engaged in sexual activity either just before or at the time of death, although Dr Biggs could not certify if this was rape or not. Some three hours after India's body was discovered, at 6.40pm, the occupant of number 6 Stanley Road was traced to the Ibis Hotel on Northampton's Mayfair, Fair, where he had in fact spent the majority of the previous 22 hours. He'd first arrived there sometime after 9pm on the Saturday evening and had inquired as to the possibility of renting a room, only to be told that there were no vacancies at that time. Undeterred, he had asked as to whether he could breakfast at the hotel the following morning, even as a non-resident, only to be told that it was a service for paying guests only. But this had still not dissuaded him, and he was to spend the next six hours hanging around the lobby there, drinking coffee and using a computer, the internet search history of which was later revealed to include several hits concerning breaking news reports about the then-missing India chip chase accessed during the time period he was there. He left the hotel periodically for a few minutes each time, including at 3.40am when police arrived there on an unrelated matter, and where he went following this cannot be determined. However, he was certainly back at the hotel that Sunday morning, because receptionist Vicente Mendez was later to recall the flat-capped figure hanging around the hotel lobby all of that morning. On this occasion, it was noted that he had a rucksack with him containing several papers and he again drank several coffees and again used a hotel computer. By 3pm that afternoon, he was still at the hotel as waitress Victoria Salachiva had begun a shift at this time and during the next couple of hours had served the man two pints of lager and had noticed him sat in the lobby in front of the television. He drew her attention because on a couple of occasions She'd heard him talking to himself, being sat clearly alone, but still heard to speak. And he'd also approached her with a sheaf of papers and asked her to place these notes, so he claimed they were, into a bin. However, when she went to take them from him, he made a point of saying that he wanted to put the paper into the bin himself, rather than hand it to her to do. He was still sat in front of the television in the lobby when several officers entered and approached him, asking him to confirm his identity. When he confirmed this, he told officers, I quote, You know who I am? I'm Edward. I'm surprised you were so quick. It didn't take you long to find me. The man, 51-year-old Edward Tenniswood, was then told he was being arrested on suspicion of the murder of India Chipchase, news which he took calmly and said nothing when asked as to how he got the very visible scratch mark upon his neck. Reports are that he instead asked arresting officers several questions, including how many of them had been searching for him, and the procedures for undertaking his arrest, before telling them that he'd been at the hotel all day, I quote, Getting my notes up to date. Police Constable Ian Bayliss then made a search of the rucksack that Tenniswood had with him, which produced a set of keys later revealed to be Tenniswood's house keys to number 6 Stanley Road, a pair of plastic gloves, a sheaf of assorted paperwork, and a kitchen knife. When confronted with these items, Tenniswood said calmly, I suppose you've been to the house and found what you're looking for.
CCTV footage is available of the moment Tenniswood was arrested and shows him calmly being led handcuffed out of the lobby of the Ibis Hotel. When he was later interviewed following his arrest, Tenniswood made no comment answers to all questions posed to him, apart from admitting and acknowledging that he knew where Bridge Street was. He also interrupted the interview to ask if he could have a cup of coffee. On Tuesday the 2nd of February, Edward Tenniswood appeared before magistrates in Northampton charged with India's murder, where her alleged killer, wearing slip-on shoes and a grey top and jogging bottoms, spoke only to confirm that he understood the charge against him during the two-minute hearing. Two days later, he appeared before a judge at Northampton Crown Court via a prison video link from HMP Woodhill in Milton Keynes, where he was being held on remand, and at which a plea hearing was arranged to take place on May the 27th, with a provisional trial date set for July the 18th. Some weeks later, Tenniswood would once again appear in the same way at the same court, this time to face charges of rape in India. Meanwhile, following the discovery of India's body, a Collingtree pub spokesperson was quoted as saying, This has been such shocking news, and we can't begin to understand what India's family are going through. India had only worked for us for six months, but was such a shining star within our team. She will be missed by us all. Following the discovery of India and the arrest of Tenniswood, the Collentry pub had also posted the following statement on social media. Our hearts are broken, our tears are flowing a steady stream for the loss of our colleague. Friend, loved one, a little smile machine who will be greatly missed by all that worked with you, or had the privilege to be served by you. You were a joy to work with, nothing ever being too much trouble, always gave without expectation, you brought joy to so many. Your infectious smile and humour will be sorely missed. So much love out there for you little lady, it would make you smile. Lots of love from all of us. And I'm sure that it would have done, because there really was. More than a hundred floral tributes to Tragic India had been laid outside the pub where she'd worked. Among them one from a police officer, which said, I didn't know you, we never met. The loss of your life fills my heart with sadness. Your family are in our thoughts. Another tribute from a friend of India's read, One of the loveliest girls I had the pleasure of knowing. We've shared so many great memories in, all of which I will never forget. The tributes came from almost everyone who'd known her, and as we've heard, some who never did, as well as concerns for a devastated family. Her father Jeremy immediately flew back to the UK to comfort and console his children and his ex-wife, and the Chip Chase family remained dignified and private in the wake of India's murder. They did not give any interviews to the press, nor did they attend the inquest into her death, which was held at Kettering Magistrates Court and adjourned on the 25th of February. In fact, the sole communication from the family came from India's distraught brother Harry, who paid the following tribute to his older sister on social media. I'm deeply saddened to confirm that India Eve Chipchase has passed away. Please respect our privacy at this time. I miss you, my little angel, 
You'll always remain the best big sister I ever had and always hold a place deep in my heart. Even details of India's funeral service, which took place on the 18th of March 2016, were kept very private. It is known that she was cremated, but other details are unknown. I completely understand people retreating into their inner circle due to grief, especially at losing someone in such a shocking way. Heartbreaking, eh? As I said in the previous episode concerning the murder of Lisa Skidmore, I put as many tributes into these episodes as I can do, just to try and convey that sense of loss that people who know those concerned must feel. Though of course, something like that you really can't measure, can you? Meanwhile, what of the man accused of her murder, Edward Tenniswood? Several neighbours of Tenniswood commented following his arrest, with his next-door neighbour, Alice Barber, describing the moment police officers forced the door of number six after no response. They were knocking on Edward's door. I told them he didn't ever answer the door anyway, so they broke it down. They found her body. It's shocking and terrifying to think she might have died next door. We don't have anything to do with Edward. I didn't even know his surname. He lives alone and kept himself to himself. He hardly speaks to anyone. He didn't have a girlfriend as far as I know. Peter England, who lives on the same street, added, He writes books. I don't know what they're about. He likes his wine and I've seen him wander all over the street when he's had a drink. He lives on his own in that house. There are no curtains or carpets on the floor, just newspapers. It's a messy house. There is grease everywhere. Another neighbour told the Daily Mail newspaper, I never saw anyone go in or out of his house. I sometimes saw him coming back home with a paper or a pint of milk, but he never really said much. As far as I know, he lived alone and didn't have family. I always assumed he was a divorcee or something like that. He certainly wasn't someone you'd go out of your way to get to know. As details emerged about the man accused of India's murder, which we shall save for the next time because there's plenty to come in this tale yet, Tenniswood's mother Ursula declined to comment on the media, but his 78-year-old stepmother Anne did say how news of his arrest had come as a shock to them. She said that his family had had no contact with him for years, and she'd even torn his pictures out of her photo albums, following a row that they'd had 20 years before. Anne said, I last heard from him many, many years ago. We just wrote him off out of our lives. All I can think of is that poor 20-year-old girl and what her family must be going through. I am appalled for them. It has dredged up too many awful things, things that are in the past and have been dealt with. And now, the 51-year-old, who was described as a bookkeeper, was on remand awaiting trial for the rape and murder of 20-year-old India Eve Chipchase. How would he plead? Well, the trial was to hear all sorts, and it's fair to say that you won't believe what you'll hear. It's one of the most unforgettable accounts I've come across since doing the show. And we shall find out all about it in the second and final part of The Good Samaritan. 
because that seems a perfect place to leave the tale for this part, and what a shocking and saddening case so far it's been, I'm sure you'll agree. Now I shall save my own thoughts and wrap up for the end of the concluding part, as I usually do, but what I will say is that if you take anything so far from this tale, I wish this for you all always of course, but especially around this time of year as the episode comes out where, although people are encouraged not to right now because of Covid, but where there may be those extra nights out for people with parties and celebrations with friends to attend, and at which we each may have that one drink more than usual. By all means have a great night out and enjoy yourself folks, but please be safe all, stay with your friends as much as you can do, and look out for each other, because, as we've heard with India's tragic case, danger is always out there. With that I shall wrap up here and crack on with part two, although it's mostly already written, and I shall be back next time around with the concluding part of the series six finale, The Good Samaritan, which, like Chorley FM, will be coming in your ears soon. All that remains for me to say then is that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you all good and safe times, and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care all, we'll save the traditional end of series different sign off message for the next time. Thanks very much for joining me and goodbye for now.